Good morning. Uh, my name is John Farthing, and it's my privilege to welcome you here and uh, invite you, invite us all, to open our hearts to what God is doing and what God is saying here today. We're not here by coincidence. It's not an accident that we're gathered here today. God has brought us together for a purpose, and we are confident that his will is going to be done in us this morning. We came here today thinking about where do you find good news in this world of ours. We just saw part of the good news. We just heard the report about what God is doing in the world. And we've been given the privilege of being a part of what God is doing in the world. And we're beginning to see its fruits. Is that good news or what? One other item. Uh, we live in a, a world full of crisis and danger and turmoil and tragedy. I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I suspect that uh, many of you, maybe all of you, are familiar with the crisis that's been unfolding in a cave in Thailand throughout this past week when a dozen or so young soccer players were trapped. And uh, the, it seemed ominous at the beginning. Um, as of several hours ago, according to the New York Times, there were four of the kids who had been rescued. According to the Washington Post, there were five. That rescue operation is undergoing, is, is ongoing uh, even now. And so as we uh, worship here in the security of this place, let us be mindful of the children and their parents and those who seek to reach out to them with the healing mercy and presence of God. Amen. I wanted to say to you, um, I'm holding in my hand Grace Church Learning Guide for this week. It is a work of art. It's available on the website. And I really want to encourage you to uh, turn to it. There will be a lot of material there that will enrich our study of what God is saying to us in the book of Revelation. And by the way, big shout out to Feli Lawson. Lots of folks worked on this, but you'll see the hand of... of did I say Shelley? I meant Feli. A big uh, shout out to Feli Lawson. Uh, her hand basically created this. Take a look at the website. I long ago lost count of all the earnest Christians over the years who have said to me, Brother John, I love Jesus, and I know that the Bible is God's Word, but the book of Revelation just gives me the heebie-jeebies. That's a direct quote, heebie-jeebies. What is such an awful book doing in the New Testament anyway? In my cowardice, I have never mustered the will 
to dare to respond to that challenge until today. God didn't call me to bear witness only to the scriptures that leave us all warm and fuzzy inside. And God has not invited you or me to live out of just those parts of the Bible that comfort rather than challenge us. If the whole book of Revelation, all of it, is not a part of God's own message of good news for the world, then we should rip its pages out of our Bibles. The question comes down to this. Is there any gospel? Is there any good news in the book of Revelation? I invite you to join with me in prayer, borrowing heavily from the inspired words of Shane Claiborne. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for creating a perfect world. Forgive us, O Lord, for the mess we have made of it. We remember those who suffer from violence today. Heal us from the violence that goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, where the blood cries out from the ground. Forgive us for the lives lost. Have mercy on us. We pray for families separated and detained. We pray for immigrants and refugees, for the victims of war and persecution, for the addicted and the homeless, for the imprisoned and the tortured, for the widows and the orphans. Forgive us for choosing ourselves over others, for prioritizing the rich over the poor, for trusting in the sword more than in the cross, for disrespecting the earth, for creating a world where so many have so little and so few have so much, for building prisons rather than schools and walls instead of bridges. Deliver us, O God, from the powers and principalities that stand against your love. Deliver us, O Lord, from the tyranny of greed and power and pride. Deliver us from the contagion of fear. Heal us of our addiction to control and the seduction of wealth. Deliver us, O Lord, from the idolatry of nationalism, from the idea that our children are worth more than someone else's. Deliver us from the cancer of racism, the cancer of hatred, the paralysis of cynicism, the violence of silence. Deliver us from the ghettos of poverty and the ghettos of wealth. Deliver us, O Lord, from ourselves. Break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Give us a vision 
for justice that is big enough to heal both the oppressed and the oppressor. Give us compassion for the most vulnerable among us. Give us fresh dreams and visions for our nation and for our world. Dreams of your upside-down kingdom where the last will be first and the first will be last, where the mighty are cast down from their thrones and the lowly are lifted up, where the poor are blessed and the peacemakers are the children of God. For a world where we beat our weapons into farm tools and study war no more. Help us to love big, O oh Lord, the way you love, with a love that does not stop at borders, a love that no wall can hold back. We ask this in the name of the God of infinite hospitality, who welcomes us all, who was born a refugee in a manger and died on a cross. All this we ask and believe and receive in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord, to whom be glory now and forever. Amen. Don't you just love gentle Jesus, meek and mild? What's not to love about the Prince of Peace? Don't you get a lump in your throat or tears in your eyes when you hear about Jesus the Good Shepherd Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, the great physician who touches and heals. Jesus, the friend of children who loves babies and bounces them on his knees. Don't those images just warm your heart? But then we come to Revelation 6. Listen, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquering when the Lamb opened the second seal, I hear, heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its reader was, rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. It was a rider holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil or the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. 
I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind him. There were were given him power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree, shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb For the day of their great wrath has come, and who can withstand it? What are we going to do when we are shocked into realizing that there's more to Jesus than sweetness and sentimentality? How are we going to deal with our astonishment when John of Patmos paints a picture of Jesus that sometimes seems like anything but gentle and meek and mild. Here's a picture inspired by our text today from Revelation chapter 6. You'll recognize the image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you're at all like me, your reaction is probably to turn away and to shield yourself from something so horrific so frightening, so so gloomy. When you look at the the four horsemen, you can't escape the terrifying sense that all hell is getting ready to break loose on the earth. It's the stuff of nightmares. No wonder it leaves us puzzled and afraid to go any deeper into this scary book. But there it sits just the same, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus as the Lord of a world that's melting down. This book claims to be a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the book ends in joyful anticipation, having seen it all, having heard it all, and having heard the promise that it's all going to be fulfilled shortly, John cries out at the end of the book, Amen. It's kind of like, right on. 
Yes, indeed, come, Lord Jesus. How can John be so eager to get this show on the road? What does he see that we're missing? I suggest to you that maybe it's that he sees it all, not as a revelation of death and destruction, but as a revelation of Jesus Christ, who is Lord even in the meltdown of this crazy world. Notice that the rider on the white horse is given a crown as befitting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And just in case you missed the identity of the rider on the white horse, he appears again in Revelation 19, verse 11, wearing a crown. And we're told in Revelation 19, 11, that his name is Faithful and true. Sisters and brothers, there's only one who fits that description. It can only be Jesus. So the chilling image of the four horsemen is dominated by the figure of Jesus. And he's given a bow, symbolizing his sovereign power to subdue the demonic powers that are wreaking havoc on God's world. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus fierce and wild. And when John first sees that vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, he reacts pretty much as I suspect you and I would. He's terrified, so frightened that he passes out. And so he says in verse 17 of of Revelation 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We can all identify with that, can't we? But notice how Jesus responds to John's terror attack. He placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. Hey, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. Do not be afraid. Clearly, lots more is going on here than just gloom and doom and destruction and despair. But if you miss that, then you're probably going to get all bogged down in wondering about the dragon and the beast and the horsemen, fixated on the sun being darkened and the moon being turned into blood. If you don't know who is the rider on the white horse, The book of Revelation is going to be absolutely disoriented, scary, unsettling. That's why most Christians down through the centuries have resolutely ignored and avoided the book of Revelation. Scares us to death, gives us the heebie-jeebies, right? But Jesus says, do not be afraid. By the way, Those are exactly the same words that the angel spoke to the trembling women at the empty tomb on the first Easter morning. Do not be afraid. In the midst of what seemed to them and often seems to us like total defeat and hopelessness 
and the triumph of death in our world, in the midst of all that, something good, something redemptive, something transformative is happening. So do not be afraid. There's good news here. I would say to you that if there is no good news in the book of Revelation, then reading it or telling others about it can be nothing but a distraction. It's always a mistake to read Revelation in search of a secret code that will satisfy our curiosity about what's getting ready to happen on the world stage or give us a sneak preview of tomorrow morning's headlines. Either it's the gospel of Jesus or it is one massive distraction. But there's good news here. There's meaning in the meltdown. Oh, it's true. Revelation 6 paints the picture of the collapse, the terror, the meltdown of a world that seems to be determined to live as if there were no God. If that were the whole story, then I suppose we could dismiss Revelation, as Martin Luther suggested, as nothing more than a gruesome horror story, or maybe the bizarre hallucinations of somebody on a bad psychedelic trip. But it's a revelation not of gloom and doom. It's a revelation not of death and despair. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's only one Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a split personality. The one who loved us enough to die for us in the Gospels has not, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, had a change of heart. The good shepherd and the friend of sinners is also the rider on the white horse. And he hasn't changed his mind about us. He has not given up on the world that he died to save. The rider on the white horse is Jesus, our Redeemer as well as our Judge, who confronts our sins and forces us to come clean about our self-centered, self-destructive addictions, but still loves us enough to take it all upon himself at Calvary. That's why the book of Revelation is good news. The rider on the white horse faces down all the horrors of this runaway world. And he's on his way to make sure that they're all defeated once and for all. That's how the book of Revelation tells us the good news that we most need to hear in a world like this. In spite of all appearances to the contrary, there's good news. There's meaning in the meltdown. It's absolutely crucial to notice where Revelation 6 and 7 fit into the larger pattern. If you miss the context, you'll almost surely miss the point. Context is key. Notice that before saying a word about the problem of evil in the world, John pictures Christ victorious, chapter 1, Christ triumphant, chapter 2. 
Remember that John's vision is addressed to those who were confused and disappointed about how life is unfolding in the first generation following the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Those early Christians never dreamed that it was going to turn out like this. Jesus had suffered, died, rose again, ascended to the Father, and promised to come again to launch a new world of justice and peace. But things aren't getting better. They're getting exponentially worse. But before saying a word about the problem of evil in our world, John of Patmos, in chapters 4 and 5, paints a series of breathtakingly glorious scenes of triumph and rejoicing in heaven. The saints and angels and martyrs are celebrating the victory of the Lamb who is Lord of all. Then when you turn to chapter 6, I grant you all the rejoicing seems to give way to the grim images of the four horsemen who announced that war plague, famine are on the way. All hell is breaking loose, but the hosts of heaven are celebrating anyway because they know how the story is going to end. Before showing us the horrors of life in a world addicted to death and destruction, John reminds us that there's not a monster at the end of this book. He reminds us that in the end, Jesus wins and his victory casts a holy, joyful light over everything that is to come, including the beast and the dragon, the Antichrist and Armageddon, and all those other images that so terrify us. After the blood-soaked scenes in chapter 6, John ends the chapter with a question. Who can withstand the fire and fury that are being unleashed upon the earth? Natural question, good question, urgent question. But chapter 7 provides the answer. It describes the celebration of the victory of the Lamb in behalf of all who've been washed in his blood. Then one of the elders said to me, those in white robes, who are they? I answered, sir, you know. He said, these are those who have come out of great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb of God at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Folks, that comes straight out of the book of Revelation. Does that sound scary to you? Do those words fill you with horror? Of course not. Of course not. 
the end of this world, with all its war and cruelty and injustice, turns out to be profoundly, eternally good news. For the rider on the white horse is the one who loved us so much that he bled and died to set us free. And he'd do it all over again if that's what we needed. The rider on the white horse, I've got the white house on my mind this morning. The rider on the white horse loves us so much that he's not willing to leave us trapped in a world of appalling oppression and terror. The one who loved us enough to die for us will bring an end to this ghastly world to make room for the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where love reigns supreme and all is well. No wonder oppressed Christians, like African-American Christians, for instance, have always looked to the book of Revelation for comfort and hope. No wonder Revelation is the only book in the entire Bible that pronounces a blessing upon those who read it. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this book, and blessed are the ones who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, for the time is near. Hear the good news of the apocalypse. Jesus is Lord, even in the meltdown. Jesus is in charge. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is also the Lion of Judah and the rider on the white horse. All heaven celebrates his triumph. And that's the context of everything else that unfolds in the book of Revelation. That is the first word and the last word. That's the alpha and the omega of Revelation and of the biblical witness as a whole. Maybe you are tempted when I put it that way to think that this is some overly optimistic, rose-tinted, feel-good view of the world. But the brutal realism of Revelation 6 jerks us back to the bone-chilling, blood-curling reality of life in a world like ours. The last three horsemen embody the basic threats of conflict, violence, insecurity, and death. That's a pretty good picture, isn't it, of the world we live in? It's a vision that strips away all our pretensions of security, exposing our deepest anxieties. Like the martyrs of the first century, we too are facing mortal threats to all that we hold dear. John's vision reads like a realistic acknowledgement of the horrors that leap out at us from the daily newspaper's headlines. War, the red horse. Starvation, the, the black horse. Sickness, the pale horse. If we didn't know who's riding the white horse, if we didn't know that the one who loves us enough to die for us is Lord even of Armageddon, then I suppose the horrendous image of the horsemen and the terrorists that erupt at the opening of the seals would be enough to drive us from anxiety to despair. But if Jesus is the first of the horsemen, 
That changes everything. We're staring at the end of the world, aren't we? And the thought of the end of the world scares us, doesn't it? Because this world, with all its faults, has been pretty good to most of us. In spite of all the violence and poverty and oppression, our children will not go to bed hungry tonight. For most of us, this fallen world, with all its corruption and injustice, has been a pretty comfortable place to call home. So we pretty much settle down with the way things are. We have a personal stake in maintaining the status quo. So we get pretty tense when we think of God's intention to bring this world to an end. But the good news of the apocalypse is that Jesus is the rider on the white horse. That's why the end of this world is an act of divine mercy. Because the world that is coming to an end turns out to be nothing but a demonic perversion of God's creation. A world permeated by hunger and disease, oppression and fear. The world that is coming to an end is a world where the planet is plundered, where babies are ripped screaming from their mother's arms, where schoolchildren get shot in their classrooms by other kids with automatic rifles. That's the world that's ending. And the end of that world is nothing if not good news. This world of terror and oppression and violence is passing away to make room for a new world of unending joy and justice and peace. So the end of the world is not something to fear, not something to dread. The sooner, the better. John of Patmos knows the bottom line. Worthy is the lamb, who's also the rider on the white horse. Jesus is Lord. Not you, not me, not Trump, not Putin, not Kim Jong-il, not the captains of industry or the defenders of a corrupt and merciless status quo. Jesus will have the final word to speak about the final destiny of our world. Is that good news or what? Who's in charge here? It's the rider on the white horse. Because Jesus is Lord even of Armageddon. Even in the midst of the collapse of this godless world, there's meaning, there's hope, there's joy in the midst of the meltdown because Jesus is Lord of all and his saving will is going to be accomplished in our lives, in our history, in our destiny. What could be better news than that? So rather than trembling at the horrific images of his vision, John says by the end, by the end of the story, John says, you betcha, Lord. Bring it on. The sooner the better. Let's get this show on the road. Come on, Jesus. I can hardly wait. And if you really understand what the book means and what the promise is, that will be our response as well. This crazy, heartless world is on its way out. 
and its death throes will leave some suffering for all of us, but we will not face that suffering alone. The rider on the white horse, Emmanuel, God is with us. The conventional wisdom, all the old certainties by which we've tried to run our lives in this insane world, they're all passing away. But there's meaning in the meltdown. There's more than enough reason for joy and hope and glad expectation because Jesus is Lord of all. That's the meaning in the meltdown because the love of God embodied in the rider on the white horse will have the final word to speak over the destiny of this crazy world of ours. What could be better news than that? That's why, rather than cringing in terror, we can join in the triumphant song of all the saints and angels, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power now and forever. That's the meaning in the meltdown of this world. So what's left to say? What's left to say? Just this. Right on, Lord. Right on. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. And let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Revelations about eternal things. I've thought about eternity in connection with this table during the past several days. I've had lots of time to sit and think. And I've been thinking about eternity. Eternity is not just the prolongation of time indefinitely. Eternity is the eternal now. The eternal now. That's where God dwells. The eternal now in which past, present, and future coincide. At this table, eternity happens. Because we're remembering something in the past. We're receiving something here and now. And as Paul said to the Corinthians, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes in the future. Past, present, and future coincide. Eternity breaks out here. You are welcome. You are invited. Because Christ has invited you. Will you come? Thank you for being here. Uh, blessings upon you all. Amen.